So today we are continuing a series called With, and we're talking about how do we relate to God. And the reason we're talking about this, why we're doing this series, is that the way that we view God, the way that we relate to him, has a profound impact on how we live out our faith and how we interact with one another. And so in this series last week, we started looking at these four postures, and these postures help us understand how we view God, because every one of us has default positions of how we view and understand God. And so in this series, we're kind of trying to, you know, peel back the covers and expose and look at those default perspectives we have and how we can ultimately move into a relationship with God. And this series uh, may sound a little familiar to you if you've been part of our community of faith for a long time. And that's because we did this series once before, about five years ago, um, we did this series and it's based on a book by an author named Sky Jatani. The book is called With Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. And I would highly recommend uh, picking up a copy of this book. And so what we're doing in this series is we're taking kind of the core concepts and Sky's teaching and just kind of, you know, repackaging them and diving into them and looking at how they apply to us in our faith community today. And so the first of these four postures was what we looked at last week, and we looked at life under God. And so today we're going to be looking at life over God, and there's some similarities between over and under God. And if, if you're watching this, and maybe you're someone who doesn't really consider yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe you're just checking this out and, you know, want, you know we're sent this video link by a friend, um, this posture of life over God might be one that is very intriguing to you, because life over God is one of the postures that is difficult to spot in ourselves, but it's actually quite easy to spot in other people. And the point of this, these postures and understanding them isn't to be able to type or label people, but maybe to recognize and say, oh, this is how your framework for how you see God. And and one of the tough parts of this framework that we're talking about today, this life over God posture, is it's one of the postures that is not only harming our relationship with God, but sometimes this posture can cause us to harm people around us in the way we talk about God, in the way we speak about God. But I'm going to get to that kind of near the end of the message today, how that is. But each of these four postures of God, they all try to control God through various methods, but each of them ignores the fact that what God ultimately desires is to have a relationship with us. And so in each of these four postures, the goal is always to move towards the center of a life with God. Now, each of these four postures starts with control because the desire for control is a natural human desire whenever something prompts us with fear or anxiety. But the reality is that no matter how much control we get over our lives, no matter how much control we get over our circumstances, our situation, it is never enough to completely prevent us from experiencing fear and anxiety. There's always something that's going to happen in our lives, always something that's going to change. You know, none of us ever thought that we would live through a global pandemic. Um, but each of us, in some way, through over this past year, we have tried to find ways to gain control over our life circumstances and oftentimes trying to control something we can't control. And so each of these four postures gives us a lens to be able to see the way we have sought control. And so last week, we began with this posture of life under God. 
And just to recap it, we said that the life under God posture presents itself as being devoted to God, but is using devotion to try and control the outcomes for our personal gain. It's a very superstitious worldview and um, perspective of God where we think if we just do the right things, if we worship God the right way, if we have the right amount of devotion, then God must provide good outcomes for us. And the, the flip side and, and the kind of the underbelly of this posture is that it also teaches us that if anything bad happens in our lives, it's the result of not worshiping God properly, that it is punishment for something we've done. And as we talked about last week, that is not how God works. And this is not a posture that we want to remain in. And so that's the posture of being in life under God. And today we're talking about the posture of being over God. And this one has uh, some similarities, but some key differences to life under God. In life over God, the posture deals with fear by trying to discover and act on the principles and practices that give us a sense of control over our lives. The life over God posture is consumed with trying to figure out what's the rules, what's the practices, what's the best principles, what's the things that I should do that will give us a sense of control. And again, I say sense of control because it will not ever lead us to actually having control of our lives. It gives us the illusion and the image of control, but what we get instead isn't what we intend. And so this posture of life over God often thinks that God is uninterested and uninvolved in our lives. Um, A common metaphor that gets talked about sometimes is the watchmaker God, this perspective that God created the universe and, and set up things to run and then, you know, wound up the watch and set it down and now it just runs with him being uninvolved. The life over God posture says, well, if we study that watch and we understand all the principles and the physics and the mechanics of how it works, we can apply those to our lives and gain control of our lives that way. Now, this is a posture that has existed for thousands of years and we're going to go and we're going to look at a time when this posture was very present in an Old Testament time frame. But our modern understanding of life over God has a slightly different origin. And a lot of it comes from our post-Enlightenment modern era. And if we look at the time period of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment of just a few hundred years ago, the big advancement in human thought was we discovered something called the scientific method. And we started to realize that there is a way that we can study the natural world and we can discover things and we can learn things and then we can harness that with science and technology. Now, don't get me wrong. I think science and technology are wonderful. They are inherently neutral and how we use them determines whether we use those things for good or for bad. But even as we look at that, as we look at how we can study the natural world, the problem is, is that in the faith realm of our lives. When it comes to our relationship with God, we started to take that scientific method and that understanding that we can understand the world around us, and we tried to apply it to God. And we said, if we study God, we can learn the principles and practices and rules of how God works. And then if we use those rules, we can create what we want. And so Skye talks about it this way in the book. He says, this is the sinister shortcoming of the life over God posture. It causes us to reduce faith to principles, divine laws, and applicable instructions. And if we just get those laws, principles, and instructions right, we can control God. 
Now that might seem like a bit of a leap, but let's go to the Old Testament. Let's look at where this happens and see an example of this firsthand. And so just like last week, we're actually going to go all the way back to Moses. And so if early on in the Old Testament, the Israelites were in Egypt and they were being oppressed and Moses is born and he's, you might know the story of him being placed in a reed basket and being discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter. And so even though Moses is an Israelite, he gets raised in an Egyptian um, mansion um, as royalty. And then later on in his life, he has this identity crisis of is he Egyptian or is he an Israelite? And he kills an Egyptian foreman that was ruling over a group of Israelite slaves. And so Moses flees to the desert. He doesn't know what to do. And God meets with Moses and says, I want you to go into Egypt and lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses isn't sure how he's going to do that. He's terrified. He says, I can't speak well. And God says, no, no, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to, your brother Aaron is going to go along and Aaron's going to speak with you. And you're going to take the staff in your hand and you're going to do things with that staff that are going to demonstrate to Pharaoh that God is in control. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh. He does what God tells him to do. God sends plagues on Egypt to convince Egypt that he really is God. But part of what God is doing in that moment is telling his people, I am your God. I am the God that is here to protect you, to rescue you, to lead you out of Egypt. And so Moses gets to lead the people out of Egypt. And one of the things he does in one of the, the childhood stories that we hear of the Old Testament is Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And as Moses approaches the Red Sea, he takes his staff and he strikes the waters of the Red Sea and the sea parts and the Israelites cross the Red Sea on dry land. Now, last week, we talked about something that happened when they went to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And while he was up there, Aaron builds an idol for the people to worship. Now, just before that happens, as the people are approaching Mount Sinai, they realize they're in this wilderness and there is no water to drink. Now, the Israelites have seen everything that God's done up until this point, but as they're in the wilderness approaching Mount Sinai, they are angry because they don't have water to to drink. They're thirsty, they're parched, and they start getting angry with Moses. And Moses realized he's about to have a riot on his hands. And so he prays to God and he says, what do I need to do? And in Exodus 17, verse 5, this is what God tells Moses. He says, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. And then God says, I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, this rock that's near Moses. Strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will have the ability to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and the water gushed out as the elders look on. And we think, okay, God provides for the people, gives them water to drink. But then 40 years later, The Israelites have spent this time wandering in the desert, moving around, learning how to be God's people again, and they haven't reached the land that God has promised them yet. And so they come to a similar place um, in an area where there is no water to drink. And so the Israelites start to grumble again. They get angry. Moses realizes he's again about to have a riot on his hands as he doesn't have water. He's led the people to a place where there is no water. And so he, again, cries out to God, says, what do I do? These people are causing problems. 
And so in Numbers 20, we get the story this time of what happens the second time the people are without water. And God says to him, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. And so Moses goes over to the rock and he speaks to the people. And then this happens. Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. Now notice that God told Moses to speak to the rock, not to strike it. But Moses chose instead to strike the rock with his staff. In fact, what Moses does in that moment is he relied upon what worked in the past instead of following God's instruction for that moment. This is an example of the life over God posture. Moses knew the principle. Last time this happened, 40 years ago, I struck the rock and water came out. Now God told me to speak, but striking the rock is what worked last time. So Moses chose to strike the rock. He put the principle and the the practice ahead of the relationship with God. See, this is what the life over God posture leads to. Moses treats God like a predictable formula rather than a God who lives in relationship with him. And if we go back to the book for a moment, this is how Sky frames and, and, dis- and describes this. He says, rather than looking to a relationship with God, the life over God view seeks to discern reliable principles. It assumes that the way God has worked in the past is how he will continue to function indefinitely into the future, and that once we have discovered these principles that govern God's actions, we may employ them with guaranteed outcomes. This is what the life over God posture does. Moses knows the principle. He knows that that's going, and he believes that's going to lead to the guaranteed outcome of providing water for the people. Now, this isn't just an Old Testament way of viewing God either. This is something that Jesus, during his time on earth, constantly had to speak against. And so when we read the Gospels, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's a group of people that come up frequently. Uh, Sometimes there's the religious leaders, and part of this group of religious leaders is a group known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had their origin in the second temple time period, the gap between the historical books of the Old Testament and the gospels of the New Testament. The Pharisees rose up as this group within Israel that were highly devoted to scripture. They were the experts of understanding and reading and discerning what scripture meant. And they would create these exhaustive lists of rules about what it means to follow God and how to do that properly. Now, the Pharisees were viewed as the gold standard of faithfulness within Israelite. Like, if you really wanted to vote yourself to God, you needed to become a Pharisee. But when we see Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, we don't see that same thing. What we see instead is the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus because Jesus didn't agree with their interpretations of Scripture. And in fact, at times, Jesus speaks out against the Pharisees and he speaks back at them. And one of these times happens in John 5, verse 39. Jesus says to this group of Pharisees at the conclusion of this interaction as they're discussing, uh, really, Jesus is pointing out the flaws in their understanding of who God is. Jesus says this to them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. 
Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Now, when Jesus says scriptures, he's referring to their Hebrew scriptures, what is now our Old Testament. And Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees are studying scriptures, thinking that the scriptures themselves is what gives them eternal life, the abundant life with God that begins now in our relationship with him. And they're missing the point that the scriptures point to Jesus. And so these Pharisees, these experts of the law, they were using their interpretation of scripture to oppose anyone who didn't fall in line with their chosen principles and rules. The Pharisees are an exact example of a life over God posture. They had reduced the scriptures into rules and principles and practices and said, if you don't follow these, you aren't following God. And if we follow these, then God will do the things that we want God to do. Now, when we read the gospels and when we read these encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees, we often think Well, of course, we would be on the side of Jesus. We would respond to the Pharisees the way that Jesus did. And what we miss out is that sometimes when we read these encounters that Jesus had with the Pharisees, we need to pause for a second and put ourselves in the place of the Pharisees and say, could Jesus be talking to us in this? Are the criticisms that Jesus has for the Pharisees, could those possibly be criticisms that he would have of how we view God? and how we're living our faith now? And that is a difficult question to wrestle with because when we read the scriptures, we always think, well, the Pharisees were the enemy. No, the Pharisees weren't an enemy. Sure, they were an an opposition and an opposer to Jesus. The Pharisees honestly thought that what they were doing was right. They believed that their interpretation of scripture was right. In their eyes, they were the ones who were correct and Jesus was wrong. And sometimes we may put ourselves in the place of the Pharisees more than we realize. And in fact, if we are not aware that we have settled into a life over God posture in our relationship with God and our reading of scripture, then our reading of the Bible will cause us to become more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. If we treat the Bible as a set of rules, as a set of best practices of saying, you know, we don't actually need God. We just need the Bible. And if we follow the Bible, you know, then we'll be faithful. If we turn the Bible into an idol, what we actually do is we turn the Bible into a weapon and we use the scriptures. We use our interpretation and our understanding of the Bible to oppress other people. And our instinctual response might be, well, I would never do that. But this is something that has been documented all throughout church history. Churches, even today, and even if we look at our own use of scripture, all of us have had times when we have used scripture as a weapon against someone else. When we have used scripture to say, no, no, this is the principle. This is the way you should live your life. This is what you need to follow. And we have lost out on the way that Jesus talks about scripture of saying all the scriptures point to me. And so this life over God posture, we often will not recognize that we have slipped into it. But if we are using the Bible as a rule book, if we are using the Bible as principles to try and coerce someone to act a certain way, 
we have become more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. And that is a place that none of us want to be in. So if we recognize that we've slipped into that, if we recognize that we have uh, unconsciously viewed the Bible and viewed Scripture that way, what do we do next? Well, fortunately, there are some ways that we can move out of a life over God posture. And the first one actually comes down to how do we view Scriptures? So to move away from the life over God posture, we need to start by reading the Bible to find a relationship with God. Anytime we read scripture, we need to have a relational mindset, a view of saying, I want to see how God wants a relationship with me, how God wants a relationship with his people, with his church, with his followers as a whole. That relational understanding of God must come first before trying and and must be the main thing we look for and not a set of rules, principles, and best practices. And if you want to know how do we do that and you want to dive into it, into that, uh, about a year ago, uh, I did a series that you can find here on YouTube called Bible Study, How to Read the Bible. And even just the first message of that series, you can find it here on YouTube, um, is an example and a more in-depth exploration of how do we read the Bible to find a relationship, to find the wisdom that God is offering to us instead of treating the Bible like a rule book. And the second thing we can do to move away from a life over God posture is to read the Gospels and let our knowledge and love of Jesus guide how we read the Old and New Testaments. If you pick up your Bible and you look at the, the amount that it is, the Bible is a big book and most of them have really small writing and you think, man, this is a massive book to read. But if you narrow it down to just the Gospels, if you've never read Scripture before, just start with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four accounts of Jesus' life from different perspectives and different viewpoints of who Jesus was as he lived his life here on earth for those three years of his ministry. Start there. And let our understanding of Jesus and how he interacts with people, what he does and what he teaches become the foundation of how we read the rest of scriptures. Because if we remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees is he accused them of reading scripture improperly. He said, you read scripture to try and find eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. So let's start with Jesus in our understanding of all of scripture. And then there's one more thing. And this third one is, is, is easy to say, but is very difficult in practice. And so to move away from a life over God posture, we have to stop using success to determine if we are faithful in our relationship with God. Now, and when I say success here, I'm talking about success in human terms. And if we go all the way back to Moses that second time, when the people were angry, when he has a ride on his hands and he is upset and he doesn't know what to do. He cries out to God. He says, what do you want me to do now? And God tells him, speak to the rock. But when Moses struck the rock, instead of speaking to it, water still poured out for the Israelites and their livestock. Even though Moses disobeyed God, it was still effective at providing water to the Israelites when they needed it. And we might look at that and scratch our heads and say, wait a second, why did it work? Why was Moses effective at this? Why did Moses have success in the eyes of the Israelites, even though he disobeyed God? 
But when God has his relationship with us, we need to recognize that how we define success is not the same way how God defines what being successful in a relationship with him is. Because our human point of view of success is success always means bigger, better, and more. If we're successful in a human frame of reference, it means we've achieved bigger things, we've achieved better things, we've uh, amassed more money, more influence, more whatever it is for ourselves. But that's not how God views success. But the life over God posture always pushes us towards that understanding of success. Because if we understand the rules, the principles, the best practices from scripture, we can then take those things and apply them to our lives to guarantee success. To say God must provide success for us in the way we determine it. But our success in a human point of view does not guarantee that we have been faithful in our relationship with God. And so when we look at someone and we say, oh, they've been successful in their life, that doesn't mean that in God's eyes, they have been faithful in their relationship with God. Because that is ultimately what God wants. He wants a relationship with us. That's why Jesus came into the world to make a new covenant with humanity, to make a new path open that we could have that relationship with God. And I want to end um, with a quote from Sky and one more passage of scripture. And Sky tells us this. He says, the life over God exchanges a relationship with him for applicable principles, but it fails to alleviate our fears by stating that we are ultimately responsible for every outcome in our lives. See, if we think that all we need are the rules and principles that we extract out of scripture, then that what that means is we are ultimately responsible for every outcome in our lives. Whether we succeed or fail, it's on our own shoulders. Everything comes down to the choices that we make. And the reality is we do have the ability to make choices, to make decisions that are good, that benefit us and those around us. And we have the ability to make decisions that are poor and terrible and affect us and those around us in negative ways. But the life over God puts all of that on our own shoulders of saying we are ultimately responsible for all of it. And that is a weight that humanity was never meant to bear on our shoulders alone. In fact, God wants us to move out of the life over God posture because in a relationship with God, we can let down and let go of that responsibility. We can let go of that burden. And so Peter, one of Jesus' disciples who later becomes kind of the, the first big leader of the church, he preaches the first big message after the day of Pentecost, which on the church calendar is actually today um, when we recognize this time period after Easter when Jesus um, ascended and then shortly thereafter the Holy Spirit descended and empowered the church. And Peter got up and he preaches this amazing sermon and he leads people into recognizing that Jesus really was who he said he was, that he came to be the Messiah, the anointed one that brought about a new relationship with God. But later on in Peter's life, Peter writes a letter to be distributed to a group of churches. And at the conclusion of this letter, he writes this simple line that just exemplifies what it means to move away from life over God to life with God. And he tells these churches he's writing to, he says, give all your worries and cares to God 
for he cares about you. Moving out of a life over God posture means that we recognize that we can take those burdens, those rules, principles, best practices, everything we've put on our shoulders, and we can take that and we can give it to God. Um, Some translations say, cast your worries and cares, meaning to like throw them on God because we need to get them off of ourselves. To give those worries, to give those cares to God. Why? Because he cares about you. This is tough to do. This is difficult to do, to say, take our definition of success, all the things that we put on ourselves, and instead lay that down and say, God, I want to experience your care and your love for me. I want to experience your presence in that relationship with God. That is incredibly difficult to do, but it is oh so rewarding. Because in that, we find the relationship with God that we have been yearning and, linger, and, and wanting in our lives. And so, if we find ourselves in this life over God posture, if we find that when we read scripture, we have been reducing it down to rules and principles and practices, and maybe we've tried to impose those rules and our understanding on others, could this be the time and the moment where we start to let that go and to say, no, I don't need to carry that. In fact, I want to learn who God is so that I can have a relationship with him. Because ultimately, each of these postures we're going to look at in the series, life under God last week, life over God this week, um, next week we're talking about life from God. All of these postures leave us empty in one way or another. And what we're yearning for, what we're looking for, is the fulfillment of the relationship with God. Let me take a moment and pray for us together. God, would you help us to see your care for us? Would you help us to see and to recognize through your scripture, through conversations, just through your presence in our lives, that this is ultimately what you desire, this relationship with us? Would you gently help us to see the times when we have turned your word into rules and principles, when we have used your scriptures to harm ourselves and to harm others by creating an impossible standard that we could never live up to? But in its place, would you reveal your heart and your love to us? And would we be receptive to you in that time? In your name we pray for these things. Amen. Folks, thank you for being here today. Thank you for joining us online. And next week, we are going to continue our series and be looking at life from God, uh, the third posture in this series. So thanks for being here. Hope you have a great week and see you online next Sunday.